Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with Indigo Girls, Amy Ray and Emily Saliers. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Are we here? Okay. Hello. Hi. 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 Hi.
Is that right, when you were a teenager? Um, Dad had a sabbatical. I was 14, and we spent a year there in Collegeville, Minnesota. Yeah, and did you take in some of that chant, some of that singing of the Psalms? Um, It gave me um, an appreciation for the power of quiet in spiritual practice, Mm -hmm. which I, you know, I think a lot of young folks, or maybe I'll just speak for myself, didn't really understand, well, what's the big idea about being a monk and going and being quiet? What does that do for the world? And it gave me a very, very keen understanding of what it, exactly what it does um, for the world and for spiritual communities. And so, and, and then it was just exotic. You know, it was Minnesota. It was cold as hell. And, uh, and um, we were in an ecumenical community. And I've always been, I like ecumenical environments, you know, because we never had Christianity shoved down our throats. In fact, my dad had so many Jewish colleagues, and we were uh, we had just a real Judeo-Christian upbringing, as much as a purely Christian upbringing. So, anytime I'm in an ecumenical setting, I feel most at home. Mm. Um, if I'm going to be in an organized faith setting of any kind, <laughs> that's the best one for me. Okay. So, Amy, what about you? Well, it was a little bit it was a little bit different from Emily, I think, in in that it was a more conservative upbringing. My, many of my relatives were Methodist ministers, um, and my aunt married a Episcopalian minister, priest, and um, so I grew up with religion all around me, and, I, and we spent Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, and Friday night youth group, yeah. so I spent a lot of time at church, yeah. and um, went to church camp for about five years when I was uh, becoming a teenager, and there was music all around just we were we were supposed to learn piano when we were young and we sang hymns as a family and and uh you know campfire songs kumbaya and all that stuff for real and um (laughs) you know they'll know we were christians by our love i probably know a lot of them still actually and um i was i was really into church actually I, i had a great youth minister and i found it to be a place where i could challenge I mean, my church was very conservative, but my youth group wasn't. And so it was a place of a lot of challenging questions all the time. And I learned a lot at when we went on retreats and you get in trouble and you, you just feel you're, you're always kind of pushing your boundaries, you know, and it's a safe place to do it, I guess. Um, but I went on to be a religion major in college, and I thought for one moment that I might actually ex- go to seminary and explore that path. Um, but music music was a bigger draw and I, and I couldn't decide what I would, you know, I couldn't pick one, to be honest with you. You couldn't pick I between... I couldn't pick I, between Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism. Oh, you and couldn't pick a religion. And, you know, <laughs> I thought you meant I you mean, couldn't pick between music and religion. They're all great, you know, and, and I, yeah. I really felt that way, oh. you know, so I, um, but I was raised, you know, in a strongly Christian environment, so I probably relate the most to that culturally, you know, mm-hmm. but music was just uh, more of a tug and I felt like it was just what I was compelled to do. You know, um, I, I was raised Southern Baptist, which I've mentioned a few times this week. Um, so I know, and I, in Oklahoma. Um, mm. And it, it strikes me that uh, our, those, that, that, those tra- that tradition, so a lot of our churches didn't really know what to do with our bodies in general. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the language was, you know, bodies were dan- entry points for danger. Mm. But... But, but our traditions really know about the power of music, right? And when I think of uh, 
you know, there's just there's so many memories that I have and, and people I talk to, all kinds of people. And you know, I remember reading your, the book that you wrote with your father. You know, music that goes all the way through your body. It's in your cells. It's like you said, you, you still know those songs today. And I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> what was the question? Well, I'm kidding. Or, or, no, you're, inspiring, I, I you're inspiring me to think out. Think, yeah, I like think in real time. Yeah. Thinking out loud. Um, it's interesting about that fear of the body. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it just goes back to control, especially controlling women. Um, that's where I think all that fear of the body comes from. And... Uh, Oh, I thought you were going to interject. No, I was just going to say. And the truth is that men have been controlling women for a long time, uh, especially when they get organized. And so... so do, you, do you feel that there was a controlling aspect of church music, too? Well, well I was going to say, like, uh, my dad worked on sort of the newer Methodist hymnal, and there's a hymn in there with uh, uh, Duke Ellington, Come Sunday. And... Um, you know, we grew up in a very staid, all the hymns were, you could have started to picture white people sitting straight up, and, and I have nothing against white people, but for me always, it was um, gospel music that, like, especially African-American gospel music that really was the direct conduit to me and the spirit that I felt moved my life and my actions, and um, it, it involved movement of the body. It was yes. sensual, um, because... Um, I don't know, I, I sort of feel like, generally speaking, when people get all in their heads, it blocks the spirit. Because spirit is not mental, it's spirit. Yeah. And the body uh, it takes you out of your head and connects you. Um, so once I heard African-American gospel music and was blown away, and the first time I heard it, I was scared. Because a woman had a spiritual uh, ecstatic experience, although she was crying and jumping up and down, and I was terrified. But that was the body and real-life pain experience connect to spirituality, and music brought her to that place. And um, I'll never forget that day, and then I'll never forget my own journey of, of appreciating getting out of the head and getting into the body. And um, so those are just some of my musings on that. And I, and I think you're right. I think, you know, when I think about the music that I was learning in like youth group or spiritual songs, it was interesting because I actually went through a couple of years of being really conservative and going to see Christian rock bands that were not radical left Christian rock bands. They were talking about pro-life and, you know, and I was very influenced by it, honestly. Mm. And, um, and we briefly had a moment in our youth group that was very pro-life where I wasn't questioning it. And we would see that, that, film about fetuses and just terrible things and I and it it and then I would hear a song that was a pro-life song and I would be like oh I'm pro-life you know because it was a folk singer and you know and it seemed so right and hippie like to be all about love like that it was so powerful and I think that just taught me that music can it's powerful either way you mm -hmm. know and that you still have to hang on to yourself in that moment you know and know where your spirit is because it can really influence you <laughs> You know, because it takes you, it does take you out of your, out of your context to a certain degree. You know, as soon as I woke up around that, I was like, oh my God, like, you know, that was crazy mm. for me, you know, to have go, but I think I needed to go through it, 
and I needed to find my own self, you know, within, within all the different things being thrown at me. Um, how, how do you think about the line now for you between sacred and secular music? You know, is there a line? Or the, or, you know, in music or in life? There is a bit of a line for me because I'll write songs that are, I'll write gospel songs, you know, that are more like Appalachian Mountain gospel songs. And it's, and, and that's a sacred song to me. Um, and spiritual in a different way than maybe an unrequited love song might be or a, a story song about my family or something. It's, it's coming through me. I don't, I don't try to edit it too much. I don't try to make it more complicated than it needs to be. And it's just reserved for singing, you know, yeah. and not commercial anything. You know what I mean? I mean, I, put it, I can put them on records, but it's not the sa- it doesn't feel the same to me somehow. I mean, not to say that all the music's not spiritual, but there's definitely, for me, a place that I go into if I write a little gospel song. Um, I think that music is a spiritual gift, and then you artists or writers use it how they see fit. So for me, like, I used to draw more of a line between what's sacred and what's secular. Amy actually helped me with this coming an evolution of recognizing how sacred what is deemed secular is and um but you know i love a lot of rap music and it's not just rap music it could be hair bands from the 70s or 80s or whatever um i have a deep objection to uh misogyny in lyrics and in musical and posturing and um so i can love a genre but if i hear a song that has that content i can't separate it from the music and um, and I don't think that any kind of music that is used to objectify or hurt any person or group of people, type of person, or um, is a sacred practice. So I guess mm-hmm. I draw the line there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I forgot y'all were there. <laughs> I've also read you saying, um, talking about finding more of what you wanted in church sometimes in a smoky bar than you found in churches which is a little bit different way to talk about sacred secular well that's why we spent so much time in smoky (laughs) bars i think i mean i um i think like with the book that i wrote with my dad we talk a lot about that because like he cut his teeth on jazz which is deemed secular you know but it really informed his musicality which then he got the calling to faith and and then he focused on, on uh, you know, church music and hymnals and things like that. Um, but, you know, when we played in, like, Little Five Points Pub in Atlanta, it was a motley crew of people from all walks of life. And we used to join each other on stage. And we just had this sort of, you know, most of us were dysfunctional in some way or another. But it was very honest. Are, are and we, we all dysfunctional yeah, for in real. some way or another? But in church, sometimes people pretend that they're not. Right. Or the, right. the message is, like, we're not. Um, or they're too afraid. Like it's, it's, it's real hard to get real sometimes in church, the real pain, the real stuff, you know. And um, a lot of times it's focused on the life to come rather than the life that's right here and what we can do. So, but back in those days when we were playing in bars, I mean, my, and my dad and I talked about this a lot, was like that is a spiritual experience. And I know the word spiritual gets used a lot, and maybe we don't even know exactly what it means anymore, or I don't, but... Um, it was a feeling that people who were very different from each other were all welcome together. 
Um, very little judgment going on, as I recall. Just a, a hoot nanny of people's bolstering each other's spirits through music. And that's, you know, if that's not spiritual, I don't know what is. So, When you said a minute ago that Amy helped you see, you helped you think differently about that relationship. Can you say some well, more Amy's about that? Well, always just been like, you know, I, I think I... I had just ideas in my head about what was what, this is this, and this isn't this. And Amy opened my, she was more alternative than I was, you know? Like, she liked music that was more alternative. She liked music that was more raw. I think she had an understanding of real pain and um, than I did. You know, she was just more evolved about all that stuff and just kind of... <laughs> was who she was and I learned a lot from her about that I honestly did and um I still do and but specifically about the power of music like okay I'll give you an example like because we were classically trained and we listened to a lot of classical music and jazz and stuff like that I had an early snobbery about um <laughs> what's, Amy's nodding what's the best agreement. quality music whatever and Amy's like Three chords is closer to God. <laughs> she didn't say that, but. And now I feel that way more than I do the other way, you know? So it was Amy really helped me with that, um, and I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize how, that you had that much snobbery about it. It was only when I was very young. Yeah, because you didn't act like it. But, it, but when very... I was very young, it was like, yep, yeah, classical music is the ultimate. Um, I didn't have an appreciation for simpler things that were profound as, as much as I do now. I don't usually ask people this question head on, but I, I feel like you guys can handle it, which is, uh, <laughs> now you really want to know what I'm going to say, don't you? It's not that. Are, do you think of yourself as religious now? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, to, I'm very spiritual. I, I guess I'm... In some ways, I'm religious too. I, it's just, it's so much the fabric of my life. It's so much the way I think, you know? And I think I took what I think is are good things from the church about, and the gospel, you know, and applied them to my life in a way that, that has worked for me, you know? And I like having that. For me, it's, an, it's a cultural construct that works really well, you mm -hmm. know? It, I know there's so many of them. You know, but like I know the one that works for me, and um, so yeah. I'm, but I, but I'm not like, you know, I don't go to church a lot. I go sometimes. Um, I really actually wish I went more, to be honest with you, because I really enjoy it. But I get so carried away. You know, I love church, any kind, any kind of church. You I do. just, yeah, I just love. It's interesting to me, the spatial relationships between things, what people say, what kind of hymns they sing. You know, it's all interesting. Like, I, it's not just intellectual. I mean, it's spiritually interesting. Yeah. You know, I find it to be all valuable in this really weird way. And I actually feel less judgmental when I'm in there, even if people are, hate me and they're radically different from me. <laughs> okay, I, that's really I, interesting. I have this feeling of openness that, that lets the hate just go off. And, and I just feel love in the building. It's weird because I really like nature more. But I'm just like, I think it's from being a religion major or something. I'm just, I'm really attracted to it, you know, in this weird way. So mm. I do consider myself religious. Mm. I do. 
I saw someplace, I think it's a video you did. You said you, said you, call, you called yourself a queer for Jesus. That's what yeah. I am. I'm a queer for Jesus. That's about right. <laughs> yeah. It's the, I went like the queer Easter bunny is like the mascot for that, I think. You know, queer fertility. It's awesome. <laughs> How about you? Do you, do you, do you t- think about yourself as religious? When I think about the word religious, it, it has a negative connotation to me and, um, because it, I think about it as organized, and then I don't feel part of that. Um, for me, whatever, and I feel like the language is always limiting. Like, Yeah, and I think that's kind of what I want to get at, because I think the language is limiting for everyone. So I like, to, yeah. I like it to ask people to break it open and say what it means or doesn't mean for them. Well, for me, um, I'll, I'll go beyond the word of religion, because I do think of that in terms of... Uh, organized. And um, I think of that in terms of abuse of power, uh, like uh, bureaucracy, all that bad stuff, you know, that even is happening in the church today. Um, That, you know, so many avenues that really like block you from getting to the the source, which Mm -hmm. is um, what I want to get to from my own journey. I think that um, I have such a deep connection to the music that I grew up with in church the hymns, the sound of the organ, and also like because we weren't raised in really like um, any kind of church that made us feel bad. It was kind of thoughtful, like the sermon was related to the readings and it was all, and there was a season that was based on the Jewish calendar that was recognized as based on the Jewish calendar, um, which I always appreciated. And so I like like, and with my dad and the people that I grew up with, um, the theologians, they thoughtfully organized liturgy. Like, they put thought into constructing it so that people might get the most out of it. So I appreciate that, like writing a good paper or something, I guess. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you construct it with care, it's bound to be more effective to the reader or the receiver. So I grew up with that. I like that part of thought and organization and structure in religion. But for me, you know, I have to say that um, no matter what it's called, and I'll call it God, but to me it's a, a great benevolent spirit that's much wiser than any of us, my belief, um, that is involved in, in the formation of things, the change of things, the evolution of things, is my whole, my life is in that spirit's hands. That's what I believe. So it's not... It ain't me running things. But that's when language and imagery gets in the way. I don't believe in a puppet god or puppet master god or any of that stuff. So can't even describe it. It's loving, it's powerful, it's wise, it's kind. Um, it's not a mother or a father. It's just this thing that I trust because this thing has shown me time and time again uh, its wisdom. And that, I, I have my feeble human perception of what wisdom is, but I'm going to go with that. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, and I was thinking about what you said about language and stuff being such an obstacle and what Emily said. It's, it's so funny because I feel like in some ways um, I wasn't exposed to religion in that way. I was exposed, I, like my, my, my great uncle was a Methodist minister and part of his sermon was to do magic tricks. Like it was, <laughs> you know, it was a very different <laughs> exposure and I loved that, you know, and it actually was good for me to see that. But um. I think um, we have, and I think as queer people, we also have this, we have this like built-in translator sometimes. And I can sit 
and listen to most sermons, not all of them, but a lot of them. And inside, I'm changing the language in my head as I'm going. I don't even notice it. And I'm, and I'm getting something out of it. And I'm not sitting there going, it's a patriarchy. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. You know, because I'm just so used to, from such a small age, having to do that to feel okay about myself, to be honest with you. And the same goes for music. You know, we, we grew up with rock and roll being a, a white guy's thing and sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and it was really romantic. Yeah. And we had to change all the lyrics in our heads and the imagery and believe that it was okay to be a woman and play music. And, you know, I never, like, when, I, when I'm in a graceful moment, I don't even think about it. I don't let anything block me hmm. because I, I have this, like, gift of that, you know, you're given, I think, from the time you're young sometimes to like just translate it as it comes in and make it for you, you know? And I mean, we don't all have it. We can't always do it, you know? I mean, I think we all have it, but we can't always do it is what I mean to say. And, and it's not necessarily a great thing. It would, it would, maybe it would be better to like be exposed to like this incredible intellectual, um, spiritual sermon that felt so accepting of, of who I was as a woman and a gay woman at a very early age and, and feel just feel that because I know that when I would go to a different church or have a visiting preacher that would say something like quote like Dostoevsky or something I'd be like oh my god this is so amazing because it would be something different right and and really I was just totally turned on by that you know but what I was really used to was the other thing you know which is like take what you can get from it yeah and that's what you get you know and I think that's it's it's got its own blessing in there you know somewhere yeah um, the two of you started, you got to know each other, you started playing music together when you were still in high school. And also, as I read it, still before either of you had come out as lesbian to yourselves, much less to anyone else. And then I think you were two of the first real celebrities to be very open about your sexual orientation. And, and when, I, you know, when I start to prepare to interview you, there are 100,000 articles online about you telling the story of how you came out to your parents, right? You know, <laughs> That's all people care about. <laughs> well, um, but I guess, you know, I don't want to ask you that story. I want to ask you how you start to see that trajectory of your lives and how important that was, you know, when you were teenagers in this big picture of how the world is shifting now, you know, where we are now in 2013. You think about that? You start. Oh, no. <laughs> so you mean in the context of queer Well, like, I guess one thing and... I mean is, I don't know, maybe not five years from now, but 20 years from now, that might not even be a story that would be a big deal. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Or you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I mean, I think that's coming at some point. It's like Star Trek, you know, it's like, it's the next generation for sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> or Voyager. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you, there are still, there's still so many, I mean, it's hard to envision it, honestly, because there's still so many areas and places where young people coming out, it's so hard still. There's so, there's so many people against, against you. There are some areas that, I mean, it's better than it was. There's no doubt about it. But um, I try not to look too far in the future because I feel like um, it's better to look at what's happening right now and, and there's still a lot of work to be done, honestly. But, but I hope, I mean, I hope there's a time. I know when we were in high school, 
it was the suburban South, you know, in Georgia. And we, we really didn't even know what gay meant. Like we knew that it yeah. was a joke you made about your coach. Honestly, that's all yeah. we knew. Right. right. That was it. Yeah. And then we, you know, I fell in love my senior year with a girl and I didn't even know what to call it. I was open about it. Cause I was like, this is great. You know what I mean? But so I think it's, we've come a long way and that there's the conversation it's on TV. It's in popular culture. It's, we're talking about it in our churches one way or the other, whether it's bad or good, we're talking about it, you know, and that's a, that's the first step. And just, and just hopefully we'll just take it a day at a time and just try to, it's all about neighbors, you know, it's about, about neighbors, what? neighbors. It's one-on-one. Hmm. It's changing lives one-on-one. You know, I live, I live in a rural town in North Georgia. It's pretty conservative. It's very conservative. And, um, the, the only way things change... You live there still now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've lived there for 20 years. And the only way things change is when you get to know the person sitting next to you at the diner or, or at the meeting or, or at the cafe, whatever, wherever you are. And you may be really different from each other and you just you make friends and you help each other out. And that's where the walls come down. I just find it to be like something that has to be a very um, one-on-one thing. I mean, I think, you know, obviously we're in, we're in the movement and we want to change things like that. But it's really changing in tiny little patches across the country, and we we still need to be focusing on that. I mm. think, you know, little high schools and little meetings, P flag, and all that that great stuff. That's very important still. And so, um, I think I see my life as when I was in high school and not even knowing the language around it. And now there's all this language, and we can talk about gender even, you know, which is yeah. And there's the web, you know, the internet, which is the interweb, which is awesome, you know, because then somebody who can't be exposed to that language gets exposed to it, you know, mm-hmm. so. There was something you wrote. Um, I, I think you helped write this. It was, it was I believe, it was a cover to one of your albums that maybe you did on your own. In the mid-1970s, Amy Ray was a Georgia tween plucking out Partridge family songs on her guitar and dreaming of becoming David Cassidy, the ardent teen idol who got all the girls. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I didn't write that. My you didn't ex-girlfriend write it? wrote that. <laughs> I mean, That's XX. even better. <laughs> yeah. She's a writer. She thought it was very clever. And <laughs> I didn't have time to change it, you know. But I did love David Cassidy. Now it's on public radio. Yeah. <laughs> Forever. Uh, I love him. I'll say it. <laughs> I was just going to make a comment about the, um, just the, the queer rights and, and where we are now. And uh, change is hard. And I feel like since the beginning of human history until the end of time, we're probably still all going to have to be working on accepting those who are different from us, you know? It's like it starts out as an evolutionary protection device. You have to be wary of that, which is different, just to make sure you're safe in your environment. But we screwed it up, you know. And um, I was just thinking yesterday, uh, my, I'm getting married next week. Yay. But thanks. We're, we're getting married. My partner's Canadian. We're getting married by a justice of the peace because we're afraid they're going to repeal the laws before we get a chance to, like... <laughs> so we're going to hurry up and get married, and then we're going to have a ceremony. So, like, queer people, they have to... They, you can't do it the way you dream about it, really, you know? Uh, we had the kid first, and then... And it doesn't matter, the, I mean, how straight people do it, it's fine, but we haven't had the same privileges of, you know, chronology. So anyway... Um, so she's gonna, we're going to get married, and then we're going to file that paperwork the next day, 
and then she'll get her green card if everything goes as we hope, and, and there you go. But she was so... Yesterday, she called Delta because we were booking some flights, and she referred to me as her wife to the agent. My whole body got tense. Here's what I thought. This agent hates her. This agent is not going to help her. This agent is immediately judging her. This agent, blah, blah, blah. And I was just, that is what is in me, you know? As much as I've been an activist and, and as much as I've been queer, you know, my whole, <laughs> my whole adult life. I was just like, wow, the change has to come from within. It really does. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time. And Even from within you. Yeah, but I've, been, I've allowed myself to be damaged by other people's judgments of me. And it's hard not to when you talk about the church, too. Holy cow, you're going to hell and all that. Um, even the, God bless the Pope, who at least came out and said, I can't judge gay people. If, I mean, that's change. But that takes... And Amy turned me on to this book, uh, uh, The New Jim Crow, um, by Michelle Alexander. And yeah. I mean, they're just about mass incarceration of African Americans, if you don't know that book. And um, it's the same thing. It's like um, ways that we control people we're afraid of and how hard changes and how long it takes. So I'm so excited about being a wife, really. I like that word, wife, personally. But... Um, my whole body tensed up, and I'm like, you know, it was a bad feeling. How, how did the agent react? Totally fine. Let me check that for you. One moment, please, you know? <laughs> yes, I can seat you two together. And then it's little by little, you realize that not everybody hates you. Well, I mean, I'm exaggerating. I know that. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah. So... You two definitely are in this lineage of mu music and social justice, social healing, social activism. Um, I mean, we've been talking about this piece, about, the, about this sexuality piece, where there's a lot of change that's unfolding right now in real time. But um, I, I kind of want to ask you about how you think about social change in our time with, you know, I've been talking to some people here about who've been involved in the civil rights movement, and social change doesn't look like that now. The, you know, you don't have the... It's not, it's not clear that you can have the leaders and the critical mass the way it worked 50 years ago. But on the other hand, we have technology. I'm just kind of curious about how you see that, this time we live in, and, and how change happens and how music can be part of that. It's Huge great, question. Great okay, you question. got it. Great question. <laughs> Ask her how she thinks about it. Yeah. How do you think about it? <laughs> no, there's, that's against the rules. Oh, sorry. Oh. sorry. It was Amy's idea. We have rules here, too. Um, I think about... It's like church. But you, yeah. know more than, you know more than we do about it. I mean, I think it's an excellent, excellent thing to think about and talk about. Um, I, can't, I can't really wrap my mind around technology. I do know that I trust the media far less than I used to. Um, there's so much information out there and I think it's, it's, you ha it takes a lot of energy to be vigilant. Yeah. And, and how do you even know where information is sourced from, um, and all those things. So, you know, back in the days, like let's use the sixties or the anti-war movement, for example. I mean, it was easier in a way to consolidate a spirit and a movement. We were less distracted. We had less options, uh, 
less avenues, less choice. Um, the world seemed a simpler place, although humans weren't any simpler, but the world seemed a simpler place because we weren't bombarded. Um, but also, like, technology now really brings to light. I mean, we wouldn't know about a girl who was shot in the face by Al-Qaeda. And maybe they weren't even Al-Qaeda. We don't even know that. But they want us to believe that they're, you know, the enemies are everywhere out there and countries where people's so, skin are brown. I mean, brown. it's tricky because on the one hand, there's more, and on the other hand, you don't know what to trust. Right? Yeah, yeah. But it brings to light. I mean, I think the tools are as powerful, but maybe not more powerful than they ever were. And you think about, you know, and I think about music, how music, you know, Vincent Harding, who was here, who was a civil rights leader, talks about how civil rights activists, there was this aspect of singing the way to freedom as much as it was about politics and marching. And, and uh, you know, everything started and ended with singing, and singing was there all the way through, or you know, figure like Pete Seeger in the 60s. So now you don't, you don't have that, but you do have technology that's so accessible, right? Your music is out there in ways that you could never have imagined it would be out there when you started singing together in high school. But it's, it's out there. In, it's not the same, though, as, as a protest song that's, that is not owned, but, but, but part of a movement. And so it's, it's, a different, it's a different property. I don't know how to... It's like... There's so much about music that's become, um, I guess, secular rather than sacred in some ways because I consider protest music sacred. Um, hmm. And we, you know, like when you read about Woody Guthrie and I was talking to a friend out there about this, um, traveling around from one union thing, event to another and migrant workers and all the things that were happening and the music just being this thing that fueled all these stops. And I think that still goes on. Um, to a certain degree, well, um, I, sometimes. But I think it's we we don't even write enough protest songs. We're still singing the same ones, you know, and they're great. But like we don't. It's not. But I don't you know what's wrong. you write you write activist music. Yeah, but it's not like it's like you go to an SOA um, protest and you're like, what song should we sing? And you know, closer to fine. But it's like, but there needs to be a we shall overcome. You know, of our of our. I mean, I've been talking to. It's funny, this whole last year I've had a lot of these conversations with activist friends of mine from different groups that are working in the, um, the undocumented um, workers' mm. movement and, the, and racism movements. And the, we all talk about that, too, you know, which is like we, we need to be writing songs and telling our stories now that are going on now. You know, and I know there are people doing that, but they're not getting heard because there is so much. And so it's like how do we, ex how do we elevate those people and how do these songs get heard? And how do we make them into the songs that are the songs of a movement? And so I don't you, know. you're all asking those questions. We're and asking those it. questions. We that. don't know the answers. So I know you know this, but I mean, people's lives have been changed also by your music. You know, somebody was just telling me somebody here who's from England about hearing you the first time in Royal Albert Hall and 20 years ago. And I think music can change people because it's a gather. It gathers us together. And it, and, it, and it opens you up. And, it, and, you know, like when we all sing Closer to Find together as a crowd, we're having, that's a, that right there is a revolutionary moment. The hmm. barriers are coming hmm. down. We're singing this song. And, and I, I agree with, like, I think that that music is so powerful like that. But I, but I also crave that, you know, 
writing This Land Is Your Land, you know, like writing a Pete Seeger song or a Woody Guthrie song. And yeah. You know no. what I mean? I mean, I'm not yeah. saying that. No, like, I know. It's a- or, or, you know, any of the great gospel songs that have been taken by the movements in the past, you know, and having those. And I'm not saying, I'm just saying, like, I have yet to understand what we're, where we're at either, mm-hmm. you know, because I think where we're at is, is as important as the civil rights movement in the 60s. You know, there's a cross-pollination of, of immigration reform movements and queer movements and poverty movements and hunger movement. They're all coming together and they're helping each other out. It's remarkable. And I think that there's something remarkable going on. But how do and, we sing about it, huh. you know, is the question I have. <laughs> but so y'all a, write some lyrics. Let's get it's some It's a great question to going. put into the world. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree with everything that Amy said. You wrote a song, um, uh, Let It Ring, that to me is as anthemic and powerful a protest song and a movement song as anything that's out there. Um, what are, it's just, we're not Bruce Springsteen, so not, not as many people hear it. And <laughs> that's true, we're not. What are, what are the lyrics? Can you, what are some of the words? Uh, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, we can put it in on the radio, but I... Yeah, sing it a little bit. Well, it's Amy's song, but when I get down on my knees, the gist of it is I pray the same way that you do, and um, let justice ring is the the gist of the song. So, um, but I sort of think of it as a queer anthem as well, but it's not just for queer people, it's for everybody, um, whoever was judged. Um, So it's very, very powerful always gets a very strong reaction. You can't fake that, you know, that visceral connection to what's really going on. That's, that's when it doesn't go through your head first, you know? Right. Go straight to that thing. Your body. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And hammer and nail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, oh, what? That's a total... When Emily's songs, hammer and nail, that's... <laughs> There's so many lines in that song nail. I would change. Yeah, but, but it's, it's a... But mo- the, it's a <laughs> But the it's point of it, yeah. yeah, it is a yeah. movement song. It's a movement song. Yeah. I shouldn't have written it when I was that young, but. Um. <laughs> I'm kind of amazed. When did you write Closer to Fine? How, how old is that? Well, it came out in 89, but I probably wrote it in 87, 86 or 7. I'm kind of amazed you could write that so young. Yeah. You know, when right. I read this, you know, I mean, and I, I wrote it, so I was getting ready to interview you, and then I, I heard the song, I couldn't get it out of my head, and then I heard it was on the radio, and I heard it again, and now I'm singing it constantly. <laughs> but I mean, I just, I printed out just, you know, this verse, we go to the Bible, we go through the workout, we read up on the revival, and we stand up for the lookout. There's more than one answer to these questions, pointing me in a crooked line, the less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. I feel like that's. <laughs> that's where you, you make learn it sound as you like poetry. <laughs> it is poetry. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. Thank you for that. <laughs> that's cool. Um, I just want to ask you if there's a song now or songs that, and maybe that people haven't heard yet, you have a new album out, but that really reflect you know, how you're thinking now about what it means to be in the world. Oh, most of mine are Amy's songs. Like, um, oh. I'm not kidding. I mean, there, there's, because, well, I'll just say that they are mostly. And there are lines in Amy's songs, like in Shame on You. I just told her this the other day, but 
you know, talking about immigration and the line, I think we were on the same boat back in 1864. I love that line, like same as it ever was, you know, and, um, and then Amy's got a song called Second Time Around. It's just very much like, uh, don't compromise. It hurts if it hurts inside and have some pride and um, don't say anything mean. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Just things like that that I want to live by. And um, uh, there's another song I was just thinking of. But yeah, I guess I don't, I don't have the same um, reverence for my songs as you I do don't? for hers. Nope. Oh, for, you don't have them for yours that you have for hers. Yeah. Sometimes, like, I feel emotionally close to the song, but usually they're about, like, personal relationships. And I'll think, oh, that, that was a good image. I got that one. But it's not, um, this is really describes what's going on in the world and that sort of thing. Cause, um, yeah, but yeah. you're forgetting some, some of your songs, possibly. Like, <laughs> like, Let It Be Me, like Pendulum Swinger. I mean, they're, act- they're activists. Hammer Nail. I know, but I don't, I, I just don't, I don't hook into those songs the same way. Maybe there's another reason. It's easier for to it. hook into the other person's song than to your own. That's just like the really? way it is. Yeah. Well, it just works out that way. Yeah. I guess so. Because that's why we're still together. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> the secret of a healthy, yeah. long relationship. Yeah. Codependency. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing like it. Woo-hoo! Oh, there's so much we could talk about. We have to finish, and we have to finish before the heavens pour again. Um, Here's a really lofty question, but again, I feel like you're up to it. This is a quote from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel in your book with your dad. You talked about religious music. I'd never read all that Heschel talking about religious music. Religious music is an attempt to convey that which is within our reach but beyond our grasp. Um... I just want to ask you how each of you think about how music and music over time has formed your sense of what it means to be human and maybe even who God is, the image of God. I mean, I'll just say a couple thoughts that come to mind. <laughs> and one is that music is um, it's physical, it's got you know, your heartbeat, it's got rhythms, it's got space, it's, it's a physiological reality along with a mystical reality, so it's metaphysical. There's not many things to in life you can point to and go, that's metaphysical, but music is, and um, in the most broad expanse of the word, you know? And also, like there's another quote that, I, that Dad taught me, which is like, what is it? Music is praying twice or something like that, so mm. I love that. Good quote. Yeah, I forget who said it, I'm sorry, but, um, and, it's just like Amy was talking about protest songs and how, you know, there have been protest songs that have bolstered the spirits, galvanized people in the midst of a very painful but positive movement, um, social change movement. And so it's such a powerful, powerful, powerful tool. So for me, it's, it's been almost everything in the way I've been shaped. But people write music and what you get out of music comes from the people and it doesn't come from, it comes from everything that's happened before it. And I love that too. Mm. Like, um, I love that there's a continuum always and forevermore. And so that's how we can really sponge up the entirety of human existence is through music because it's all, it's come from that um, and will continue to. So, you know, it's, it's almost everything to me shaped everything 
Yeah, me too. I, I'll go with what everything you said is absolutely true. The physiological thing, all that. It's funny because the you can find God in music when you're gathered together singing a song, but also there are moments that I've had seeing people perform where it's just, that's God. It's like, they're not God, but God's there. It's like Patti Smith at Red Rocks, Prince Purple Rain Tour. Heart. You know, it's like these certain moments that are raised against the machine at the masquerade in Atlanta. You know, like there's just these moments and it's not the personality of the musicians anymore. Something's disappeared. Mm. And the music and the audience and everything has merged and there's no separation between performer and audience. That is what spirituality is supposed to be. No separation. Hmm. And so the, like for me, it, it's formed everything because that's what I've always strived for is that like, not to be that performer, but to like have those experiences at shows, you know, <laughs> go to a show and have that experience. It's, it's, it's sweaty and, and it's not beautiful. It's, it's transcendent though. Hmm. Okay, those are great last words. We can't wait to hear you sing tonight. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. So we, we, I really do love your show. It's one. It's such a great show. Oh, that means so and much. I know. I'm you. serious. It's thank such you. a great show, and thank you so much. Thank you.